Revolutions Permitted is a weekly radio show from the New York City chapter of the Democratic Socialists of America. Recorded live at WBAI 99.5 in Brooklyn every Wednesday at 9 p.m. RPM's about doing the work. The work to build a democratic socialist future. Each week, hear the latest news, analysis, and organizing experience from the minds and hearts of activists fighting every day in New York City. Join the movement at socialists.nyc. Yo, what's good, New York? This is Jack Devine, he, him pronouns, and you are listening to Revolutions Per Minute live on WBAI. We're a socialist radio show and podcast for members of the New York City Democratic Socialists of America. The DSA is the largest socialist organization in the United States, with 90,000 members nationwide. And NYC DSA is its biggest chapter. We are run by our 7,000-plus members and organizers who are working together to build democratic socialism in all five boroughs. While the increasing rate of vaccinations is a rare bit of good news these days, the pandemic is still raging in New York, and Cuomo is yet again throwing workers under the bus by dangerously opening indoor dining. But restaurant workers are organizing to build power that will last beyond this crisis. Gary Inman from the Restaurant Organizing Project will update you on these crucial efforts. Restaurant workers aren't the only ones who have suffered from Cuomo's wrath, as thousands died in nursing homes while his friends raked in massive profits. Alice Murphy joins us to discuss the protests outside Medgar Evans against the governor this past Monday. Later in the show, Madeline Pelzel from Houston DSA will share with us her on-the-ground perspective about the man-made disaster in Texas and how local socialists have responded to the crisis. But first, the headlines with Simone Norman. Federal prosecutors and the FBI are investigating how Governor Andrew Cuomo's administration handled data on COVID-related deaths in the state's nursing homes. Mayor Bill de Blasio has also called for an independent panel to investigate the Cuomo administration. State legislators are pushing to strip Cuomo of some of his emergency powers granted early in the pandemic. After Cuomo aide Melissa DeRosa seemed to acknowledge on a Zoom call with state legislators that the administration withheld data about COVID-related deaths, Cuomo tried to contain the story by privately threatening Assembly member Ron Kim, telling him, quote, you haven't seen my wrath. Kim, a persistent critic of the governor's handling of the nursing home crisis, is only the latest in Albany to receive private threats from Cuomo. Recently released city data reveal that zip codes with higher proportions of white residents are more highly vaccinated than those with more people of color. The disparities are particularly severe in areas with high proportions of black residents. Despite using sites like Yankee Stadium to vaccinate Bronx residents, many essential workers who live and work just blocks from the stadium cannot get an appointment. The MTA announced that it will be able to avoid major service cuts for the next two years thanks to federal aid and better-than-expected tax revenue. But the agency still faces an $8 billion deficit over the next four years. A new report from StreetEasy finds that the pandemic-induced rent dips are concentrated in wealthy areas and have not improved housing affordability for essential workers. Despite last year's promises that police and schools will be removed as part of the plan to reduce the NYPD budget by $1 billion, these officers have not been removed from schools. 
The NYPD has been discussing hiring two new classes of nearly 475 police officers, or school safety agents, in March and June, which would cost about $20 million. State lawmakers introduced a bill that would allow nonprofit violence interruption groups to access federally allocated funds. Police reform advocates say the NYPD strategic response group created in 2015 to ostensibly fight terrorism is largely responsible for the NYPD's recent assaults on peaceful protests. Amazon and New York State Attorney General Letitia James are in a legal battle over the state's ability to require the online retailer to adopt worker safety requirements. 50 organizations sent a letter to the governor, assembly speaker, and state senate majority leader urging them to pass the Invest in Our New York Act. And in election news, New York City's largest union, 1199 SCIU, endorsed Maya Wiley for mayor. The union, which represents healthcare workers, backed Bill de Blasio early on in his 2013 mayoral bid. Mayor de Blasio held a closed-door meeting with union leaders in which he expressed support for Eric Adams' mayoral candidacy, skepticism around Andrew Yang's run, and measured support for Scott Stringer and Maya Wiley. And finally, employees of Councilmember Robert Cornegie of Bed-Stuy, who has currently raised the most money in the race for Brooklyn Borough President, have accused the politician of soliciting campaign donations from staff and campaigning while on the job. Both are violations of city ethics laws. Our headlines are brought to you by The Thorn, an incredible weekly newsletter by New York City DSA Electoral Working Group covering local politics and radical activism. You can subscribe at thethorn.nyc. I'm Lee Zishi, and I use she, she, her pronouns. And today, for our extended headline segment, I spoke with Gary Inman, a cook and New York, New York City DSA member who has been working with the Restaurant Organizing Project, a group that is doing just that organizing restaurant workers for relief and power on the job during the COVID-19 crisis and beyond. Here's Gary. My name is Gary Inman. I've been cooking since I graduated high school in about 2013. So it's been so it's been a little while. I got started in Kentucky, but then I moved to the city to get involved in the restaurant scene here because there just seemed like no better place to learn the ins and outs of the business. And then I got involved in the restaurant organizing project through social media when I like was talking to some organizers in Texas and like thankfully they had a pipeline that could link me up to some more direct action and organizing up here, which has been great so far. And yeah, so we had some members of Restaurant Organizing Project on RPM back in December um, to talk about, you know, a lot of the struggles that industry workers have been dealing with, um, you know, even before the pandemic, but then have just been so exacerbated by the pandemic. Um, what's been going on since December? You know, here in New York City, um, indoor dining opened up. Um, what's that been like and how have you all been responding? Um, well, the return of like indoor dining, has just been like frustrating in terms of like, you know, having the vaccine being so close to being available to like all the hospitality workers. And then like, of course, like it's not surprising that we've seen you know, the majority of restaurants go into full bore, pushing the limits on 25% indoor capacity. And then also like still doing to-go services and like really stretching their steps. Then the restaurant I was at basically just announced the day before indoor dining that we were going to open up two days before they had originally announced it. And there is no change to the schedule. So like we are still doing to-go, we are still doing a ghost kitchen out of the basement of our restaurant. And they were just going to like slam us with the work that we really weren't ready for, basically just to make up as much lost profit as possible. And are you seeing, I mean, I know that um, 
restaurant workers were kind of added to the list of vaccines, but are you seeing that restaurant workers are able actually to get those vaccines since they are now being pretty much forced to be back in contact with the public with indoor dining? Yeah, I mean, I was lucky enough to get the vaccine, but after like getting the dose, like I learned that I was like pretty much the exception, not the rule. I've seen anywhere from like restaurants basically just sending out a link to get signed up and that's that. And then, you know, most of the, most of the people I know have just been like left to scramble and find out how to get the vaccine on their own. And, you know, I also saw um, a report that Restaurant Organizing Project shared, you know, talking about how line cooks have one of the highest, you know, fatality rates um, of COVID being a cook and then, you know, also seeing, you know, Governor Cuomo and other people in New York really just push for this opening. How, how does that feel? It feels pretty degrading. Like, you know, like we restaurant workers have like, you know, gotten into the fold of being considered like essential workers, but like we haven't really been taken care of through any of this. We're just expected to show up to work and, you know, just put our head down and like get through this, even though like we're going through public transportation, we're working in kitchens where it's almost impossible to stay, to stay like safely distanced from people. I would have liked to like seen something where like employee vaccination would have become like a criteria for restaurants to be open in the first place. You know, like something mandated by de Blasio or even Cuomo that incentivizes restaurants to like actually have like taken care of their employees instead of just being like, hey, like, here's a link. Good luck in getting a vaccine. Like, oh, and like, hey, like we're just making a 95 mask available now. So like, good luck. Yeah, I mean, it seems like so much of the the emphasis from the state has been on protecting, you know, the industry as a whole. Um, so, I, you know, I've really appreciated seeing Restaurant Organizing Project really emphasizing, you know, this is about saving restaurant workers, not about saving restaurants. Yeah, exactly. Like we're like we're the ones that make running these restaurants possible. Like the owners just can't do them themselves. We believe like the work we do is like honorable and like we should be treated with dignity and. You know, to see like, you know, restaurant like owners basically like championing the cause of saving restaurants and just like pretty much just like leaving us in the dust. It feels like we've just like been betrayed and we have. And so what is um, Restaurant Organizing Project working on now? And, you know, how can people, if they do maybe work in a restaurant and want to get involved or just, you know, want to support restaurant workers, how can how can they do that? Right now, we're like pretty much working on building our ranks and getting as many people on board as possible to gain leverage in the city, especially when it comes to doing things like supporting employees that feel like they don't have resources to like either like leave their job or like call out their employer for doing, you know, really unjust things. Uh, so you can reach us on Instagram at NYC restaurant workers on Twitter at NYC rest workers. And uh, we have weekly zoom meetings every Monday at eight. And we have a link in our Instagram bio where you, that you can click on to uh, sign up and attend. Well, that was uh, Gary Inman, a cook and NYC DSA member with the Restaurant Organizing Project. And this is Revolutions Per Minute on listener-sponsored WBAI in New York City, broadcasting in 99.5 FM. And we are now joined by Alice Murphy. Alice, uh, can you hear us? Yes. Can you hear me? Yes. Thank you so much for joining us. So before we uh, dive into the topic at hand, I just want to give you a chance to introduce yourself to our listeners. So, like, um, what kind of what uh, propelled you into the socialist movement? Uh, why did you join NYC DSA, and what sort of organizing work um, are you uh, involved with? Sure. Yeah. So, I've been kind of uh, tangentially connected to the DSA for a while, kind of going to events, one off. Um, I think probably since uh, since Bernie, I've been kind of interested in being a socialist, but. 
um, within the past year or so, um, I, I quit a job that had to do with kind of, um, counseling people related to getting access to healthcare and, uh, doing that work. And then, uh, you know, no longer doing that work made me feel really passionate about the need to kind of improve, um, access to healthcare. So I, um, right now I, I work with the healthcare working group. Um, and primarily I, I work with the central Brooklyn field team of that working group. So we're pushing for the New York health act and trying to, um, get as involved as, as possible and, and show as much solidarity as possible with, um, local movements for health justice. Well, I can uh, completely understand how your experience with the American healthcare system would radicalize you and push you to <laughs> get actively involved in a socialist organization. Um, and so, uh, uh, speaking of healthcare, uh, the uh, Cuomo made a a visit to the vaccination site at uh, Medgar Evans uh, College uh, on Monday. And uh, there was there was a bit of an action there. So you can can you describe the the protest at the Medgar Evans uh, vaccination site? How did it come about, and and why were you there protesting? Sure. Yeah. So I think um, the action was basically put together. Um, I think pretty quickly, and and it was well done by the uh, Central Brooklyn DSA uh, organizing committee. So um, I think about like two hours beforehand. So around 10 a.m., I learned that this was happening from some people in that organizing committee um, who had heard that Cuomo would be making, um, yeah, making a, a site visit to this vaccination site. Um, and then, uh, yeah, at noon, uh, a group of people there, I, I would guess around 15 to 20 people um, gathered uh, in the snow <laughs> with a, a few signs um, to, yeah, to protest uh, Cuomo and basically to, you know, I think we don't want Cuomo to, to feel comfortable having these photo ops and trying to make himself look like the, you know, the hyper competent, um, tough love leader that he's been trying to show himself off to be. Um, and rather to, to kind of point to the huge failures that he, uh, has created and the, you know, death that he's brought about as the governor, um, you know, before and during COVID uh, and to to demand that he um, tax the rich and that he stop his kind of policies of austerity that have been have been killing people. Yeah, I think you hit on something uh, really, really important there in the sense that uh, Cuomo kind of built up this kind of perception around them, himself and it, it existed before the pandemic, but really accelerated um, as he was appearing on the you know cable news with with his brother, uh, it seems like a bit of a conflict of interest there. But in general, creating this uh, public persona, writing a book before the pandemic is even halfway through. Um, but so, but in reality, as we've seen this week, and even more news has, has uh, broke um, about a a sexual assault uh, scandal that it, he has uh, perpetuated by uh, he is, uh, it seems has a history of assaulting people who work. In the capital, but this action was related to the fact that Cuomo has been letting all these nursing homes off the hook and is really very responsible for thousands upon thousands of New Yorkers uh, dying in these nursing homes from COVID 19. So, can, what does this scandal reveal about the reality of Cuomo's administration and who does he really serve? Right. Yeah. I mean, I think. I think it's exactly that. I think um, he, as you kind of talked about, like I, I visited my home in Massachusetts this summer and my mom and a bunch of her friends were talking about how much they loved watching Cuomo on TV and how much better he made them feel about everything that was going on. 
And I think that's the image that he's kind of projected. Um, but I think, uh, you know, well, well before this, and then definitely, you know, through these actions, through sending um, sick people into nursing homes with highly vulnerable populations, and through, um, you know, kind of, kind of everything, all of his austerity policies leading up to that, he has shown that he really has no regard for um, the life or the welfare, uh, the well-being of New Yorkers. Um, and, you know, this is, I think this has been true. I think it's, it's really, I think, important that people are starting to see through that, that image that he's projecting. But, um, you know, well before uh, the COVID pandemic, he was making cuts to Medicaid that made it more difficult for people to um, stay at home and receive home-based care with dignity. So he was kind of forcing people into nursing homes He's been involved in um, basically uh, eliminating hospital beds. There have been about 10,000 hospital beds eliminated through closures and consolidations um, under Cuomo as governor. And a lot of times the neighborhoods that those hospital beds were eliminated from were also COVID hotspots in the city. So I think a lot of this like really tracks these ways that his unwillingness to invest um, any money in the health and well-being of New Yorkers, um, you know, just compounded the the COVID crisis and meant that, um, you know, we were absolutely unprepared for it. I think also he's, you know, he's really good friends with uh, the people who are running these private hospitals, which are in many cases nonprofits. So they're not paying income taxes, but they're committing um, insurance uh, discrimination. Um, they're getting large amounts of public funds that should be going towards public hospitals. And ultimately, um, you know, the losers in every situation are working people who need access to health care. Yeah, I mean, I think those are, are it's so crucial to highlight the the various ways that, you know, uh, behind the scenes, uh, Cuomo has just exacerbated this crisis through the, the network of connections that are supporting him through these austerity policies. And we're going to keep our listeners uh, we're going to keep letting our listeners know about this because it's really, really crucial to understand how the state government is actually working. And you're not going to get that sort of information on uh, on the corporate media where his brother is employed. Right. So I just want to th thank you so much, um, Alice, for joining us. And uh, thank you for, uh, you know, being part of the fight against austerity. Do you have any final words uh, before you sign off? Sure. Yeah, I guess I'd just like to say at the moment, um, the healthcare working group is working on a campaign to save Kingsbrook, which is one of at this point, um, a victim of Cuomo's austerity that um, is set to be uh, have a lot of its hospital beds closed. Um, so we're holding a rally on March 11th um, to to save Kingsbrook. And you can learn more about that at savekingsbrook.org. Well, thank you very much for sharing that uh, with our listeners. We're definitely going to keep uh, our listeners updated on all the fights against austerity, whether that's in terms of the state budget or here locally and the struggles that people can get involved with in those fights, those actions, those protests. So thank you. I just want to thank you so much again for joining us. Absolutely. Thank you. And you are tuning in to Revolutions Per Minute on listener-sponsored WBAI in New York City, broadcasting at 99.5 FM and streaming on your favorite podcast app. We were just talking with Alice Murphy about the protest against Cuomo at the Medgar Evans vaccination site. We'd heard from Gary Inman uh, about the restaurant organizing project. And now I'm going to pass it over to Lee Zishi to, for her interview with uh, Madeline about the horrific situation down in Texas and the struggle 
and organizing that's happening um, to push back against those horrors. Thanks so much, Jack. And, and as we were listening to Alice, I was just thinking about how similar we've seen um, Cuomo react within the energy space um, as well, where he, you know, his best friend went to jail for taking bribes um, from a fracked gas power plant, which I think leads in very well to our next topic, um, which is just the absolute tragedy that we've seen in Texas um, because of their energy system that has been you know, designed for for profit instead of getting people's needs. And um, we are so uh, grateful today to be joined um, by Madeline. Madeline, welcome to RPM. Hi, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, we really appreciate you making the time with with, with everything that's going on um, in Texas right now. Um, and we would love for our listeners to just get to know you a little bit. Can you, can you tell us a bit about yourself, um, how you got involved with DSA in Houston? Yeah, definitely. Well, I'll just introduce myself again. I'm Madeline Pelzel. I use she, her pronouns. And, um, you know, I joined DSA after volunteering for the Bernie 2020 campaign. Um, I joined our chapter here in Houston last April. And I really just wanted to be organizing with the people who are who are doing the work on the ground um, and not only doing it, but who believe that we will create the world that, that we're imagining and that we're fighting for, that we will win. Um, I'm really lucky to be coming of age in this moment, I feel. Um, and when I was sort of deciding where to put my time and energy, uh, DSA both aligned with my personal theory of change, but also the moral compass that I hope to bring to all of my work. Um, so it felt like a really natural um, co- coalescence of my ideals and my values, um, but also my energy um, and sort of what I actually wanted to be spending my time doing. And um, can you talk a little bit um, first just about how you were, you know, personally impacted um, during this this crisis where, you know, um, because of climate change, actually, um, you know, cold air is being pushed down, um, a polar vortex hit, hit Texas, very cold temperatures, and the, the energy system really failed. Um, can you talk about your personal experience during all this? Yeah, definitely. I'm actually going to back up first a little bit before it, right? Um, not just the weekend before, but you know, the week before, it was you know 70 degrees, um, and and again now it's it was 78 degrees today. So you have to understand that um, here in Texas, we're we're experiencing extremes, and these aren't normal for us. I mean. Um, the weekend specifically before the storm was was sort of surreal. There wasn't a lot of hubbub to get ready for anything super extreme. Um, the main conversation was was about the impending snow and and potentially for ice and for people not to drive. That was the big message. Just like don't drive on Monday, and then that's it. Um, the main conversation, you know, in terms of just like. I guess, yeah, just the general attitude was kind of of excitement. Um, the, the, you know, the snow is something that doesn't happen here very often. And um, yeah, I think that the attitude generally that weekend was sort of, yeah, sort of giddy, right? It was like almost the day before Christmas. Um, Monday came around. Um, so we're talking about Monday, February 15th, just to kind of like place ourselves in time. And um, it indeed like was a nice layer of snow all across the city. And so, um, simultaneously though, there were thousands of folks who woke up Monday to no power. Um, a lot of power cut out at 2am that morning. 
and but even more into the millions had no power by about 8 a.m. And that's what happened to me and the friends that I live with. Um, so we went out to play in the snow before we were going to log into work. We're all working from home. Um, and then when we got back, we had no power. Um, and the temperature in our house started plummeting quite quickly. Um, it was about 10 degrees an hour plummeting there at the beginning. Because at this moment in Houston, it was, um, yeah, it was about 28 degrees probably. And so, you know, our, our homes aren't really insulated for that sort of thing. Um, because normally, you know, you're trying to let air move through them um, because it's normally so hot and humid. So by mid-afternoon, our house was down at 45 degrees or, or just roughly below there. And water issues quickly followed. Um, no power and no running water are a dangerous game in, in any condition, um, but especially in houses built here in the Gulf South and with temperatures that had been lower than they had been in decades, that were lower than they had been in decades. So yeah, over the following four days, um, our house hovered between 35 and 55 degrees. 50 degrees started to feel like summer. <laughs> um, we got power twice intermittently, and that's how it, how it got raised um, above the 30s. Um, and so, you know, we would get it, we would get power. Um, once it was, you know, at, at like really late, we would, we had all the lights on so that whenever, if it came on while we woke, while we were sleeping, we would wake up so we could use that time to cook. Because even though we had gas, we have a gas stove, if you don't have the electric fan pulling that gas out of your house, it's very dangerous to use. Um, so anyways, it, st- it ended up staying on for good um, by Thursday. And yeah, um, if we have a moment, I just want to share one of the most stark memories I have of that week was <laughs> one of the mornings it was raining. Um, so it was just above freezing. And we so it, was, so it was liquid rain. And we collected buckets and buckets of rainwater to fill our bathtub with, to flush our toilets. Um, and it's just something you never think you'll do, right? Um, and yeah, we got through the worst of it with no pipe bursting um, throughout those first few days. But Friday evening, actually after we had been at a mutual aid distribution um, because we'd gotten ourselves, our household together on Thursday um, with food and water and stuff, um, we we had a pipe burst when we got home. Uh, it, was, it, was, it was leaking. Um, luckily, it was just PVC, so it was replaced quite easily. And we... Um, yeah, we started having water pressure Sunday into Monday and this this past few days. And um, today, actually, on Wednesday was the first day, uh, 10 days after it all started, that we're drinking our faucet water. Um, the boil order lifted on on Saturday or Sunday, I believe, but we, um, <laughs> we didn't really trust it. And uh, we're some of the lucky ones. So that's kind of been, been my experience along with the three friends I live with. That's really, it's it's just awful that the system was so, so unprepared for that, or I'd rather say, you know, designed to, to not, totally. you know, meet people's um, human needs. And so obviously what, what you experienced um, was, you know, a very common experience, as you're saying, millions of people um, were experiencing this. Um, so how did Houston DSA, you know, respond to this crisis? Um, and who else were you all working with, you know, on the ground? Yeah, so... And, you know, at the first few days, I think um, the chapter as a whole didn't didn't wasn't able or to have the capacity to respond um, without power, um, you know, 
most people's internet systems were down and phones were only being used for emergency situations. And so it was about Wednesday or Thursday before we um, were really able to coalesce as a chapter and, um, and make sure, you know, check on each other, make sure people were doing okay um, before we started organizing to help those outside of us. Um, just for context, like the first city run water distribution was on Thursday, like four days after all this started. So everyone had a really slow response, even the people whose job it is to be on the ground responding. Um, and so then, you know, um, I actually, my household got, got water delivered to us by say her name. Um, there's an organizer named Shelly Baker who, um, luckily had power for most of the time. And, um, so we received mutual aid on, on Tuesday and Wednesday. Um, and then on Thursday when we got power and we were able to shop and get, get many gallons of water for ourselves, um, you know, I was able to pivot and start to think about how we do more mass distributions. And so starting, yeah, on Thursday on the ground, we, we coordinated with Say Her Name, um, Texas, as well as Mutual Aid Houston, um, and began to think about how we should um, do, do distributions and supply drops in places that really needed them. Um, and so one of our big partners in trying to figure out where to do them and to get the word out to folks, especially those who um, probably weren't as online at that moment, was two Fifth Ward um, grassroots organizations called Our African Family and the Circle Coalition. And they were they were really important in making sure that we um, were at the right locations and were helping us navigate um, how to do these supply drops in ways that were equitable, but also proportional to people's need. Yeah, I mean, it's, this is something a, a kind of a trend that we've, we've heard throughout the year. Um, I mean, it's, it's horrifying. But uh, as uh, our listeners and uh, I'm coming, became, becoming made aware of is that these sort of crises are increasing and increasing. We talked to comrades um, in the fall from Southwest uh, Louisiana DSA, I believe twice, after their region was um, slammed by multiple hurricanes. And they talked about like how, and you've been discussing this, how is DSA members and community members doing mutual aid, um, reaching people with supplies much quicker than the state and FEMA, as you, as you just mentioned, it took till Thursday um, for that water to get back on. So like how crucial has mutual aid been in Houston and across Texas and, and, Maybe beyond that, why is it so important um, for socialist organizers to emphasize um, mutual aid, um, whether it's for this type of moment or maybe preparing for something like helping out in strike solidarity as well, the, the, the multi-purpose of something like mutual aid? Right. Yeah. I mean, mutual aid has been absolutely paramount. Um, you know, like I mentioned, Say Her Name and Houston's Houseless Organizing Coalition were both on the ground doing mutual aid before um, prepping for the storm, they were really doing a lot of the the prep work for folks. And then the day the storm began, um, and yeah, I mean, Mutual Aid Houston did their first distribution on on the, the Wednesday. We joined in with logistics and support on Thursday. Um, and through Mutual Aid Houston's direct aid program, they've given out nearly $200,000 directly to Houstonians. No red tape. 
no questions asked. And that's really important about mutual aid, right? Um, is that we're building a two-way relationship between um, the organization or the organizers and the recipients, right? At our distributions, every single community member who came through to receive supplies and, um, and food and water was sort of paired up one for one as they came to the front of the line with a, um, an organizer, a volunteer to, who took them through that entire, the entire process. So, you know, first making sure they had extra masks for their family and put hand sanitizer on and then going through each of the stations first, um, you know, staples and canned goods and bread, and then moving into personal products and toiletries, as well as, um, other cleaning supplies, baby formula and supplies, clothing, and then um, water, and they help help them carry those things all the way to the car. Um, and I think that, you know, you could define mutual aid as an act of solidarity, right? That builds sustained networks between neighbors, and um, and also is operating. It's important, I think, as organizers to operate under the notion that everyone um, has something to contribute and something that they need. And in some of these moments, it's um, maybe really clear. Um, that some people are in great need, but we also gained so much by hearing their stories and being able to say, hi, you know, my name's Madeline. Um, what are you most in need of today? Like, how has your week been? And really sharing in this disaster that struck everyone. Um, you know, it, it definitely, the recovery time and many of folks' experiences will be really different. Um, but this really did um, cover the city in terms of experience and, um, and trauma, really collective trauma. And so, um, yeah, I think that, I hope that answers your question, but, um, I think that it's, it's mutual aid has been just, yeah, absolutely crucial in, um, in making sure that, that our neighbors are taken care of. Yeah, it was, I, I had this moment while, while you were talking where I kind of like flashed back to um, hearing a story of, you know, people after in the Rockaways um, here in New York City after Hurricane Sandy and, um, you know, how nobody was there for them and people had to run up, you know, these these flights of stairs and buildings with no power to like ask their neighbors, like, what do you need? Um, and it's just so sad that one, we keep facing these disasters, you know, that are obviously fueled by fossil fuel pollution and capitalism. Um, and, you know, it is heartening to see that I think we've, we've figured out how to respond to them. And, you know, these networks of mutual aid have grown, but it's just so sad that again and again, um, communities are having to, to be in this situation. Yeah. And communities that aren't, um, that even if the state had had a response, uh, they probably wouldn't have been part of it. Right. Um, and I think that's also part of the point is that this organizing effort and the ones that um, predated it aren't standalone, right? We're constantly building community and understanding the best way to to serve people and be in communion with them um, throughout the many disasters and the continuing disaster of inequity, um, particularly, you know, in terms of natural disasters that seem to plague our city once every three months or so, um, but also just in the sort of blanket injustice. 
Yeah. And now there is this, you know, very much man-made crisis um, that's kind of persisting. You know, obviously there's the, the structural things that are going to need time to, to be replaced. Um, but you have this kind of man-made disaster where people are now, some people who didn't lose power um, in Texas are facing astronomically high um, energy bills where it was like over a thousand dollars a day. I saw some that are like $10,000, $16,000. Um, you know, we really saw a complete failure of an energy system that that is designed for profit. And so do you think that this crisis, you know, the combination of of a climate crisis and a man-made economic crisis, you know, fueled by greed, do you think this is going to help people in Texas kind of um, you know, understand the thing like things who may people who may not have been on board before um understand a need for something like a green new deal or or public power? Um and there are there talks of this happening in Texas right now? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that, you know, when when climate catastrophe is at your front door, something you feel, it's something you feel literally in your bones. Um, that's a moment when people are looking for who's responsible, the guilty parties, right? I'm looking for answers, um, answers that only the climate justice movement can credibly provide, right? This is when the climate movement can become a mass movement. And I think specifically in Texas, um, this is going to be a massive instigator for that movement's growth. And it's the job, I think, um, of DSA and of other organizations that we partner with to help connect the visceral impact of last week um, with a meaningful, transformative vision for the future. And like on the liberal organizing side, there is a statewide coalition of climate groups like Public Citizen, MOVE, JOLT, Texas Campaign for the Environment, who are pushing some legislative reforms. However, um, in our chapter and in other Texas chapters, um, we, as DSA here in Texas, feel like we can do more, right? We can really hold um, public, util- public utilities democratically accountable. Um, currently, that you know, there's a lot of discussions happening, but we're constantly kind of like looking towards the Tennessee Valley Authority for this. Um, and our current ideas um, are kind of collected at powerfortexas.org. Um, and, you know, we, we tuned in and helped organize the, the webinar with Kate Arnoff a couple of days ago, um, which we also felt was very powerful. And that video is there on the site. Yeah, I mean, the, we can have a, a more expansive uh, conversation about the nece- necessity of eco-socialism and the problems of capital accumulation in general. But just even in this specific instance, it's something like it, like a public utility should be common sense. The, there's, the evidence is clear that public utilities are more efficient. They, are, they cost lower. They have less of these catastrophes. It just seem, it's, it's the common sense and it should be the solution uh, right now. Um, and it, I think it's a, a great way of pushing forward a broader vision of a Green New Deal. And it was great seeing uh, someone like AOC down there pushing for it, but it's going to be more than politicians are going to be necessary for for putting something like this forward. An organization like DSA, having that uh, being rooted in these communities locally with these mutual aid networks um, and building power in the workplace and beyond that is going to be so crucial to fight for um, this this platform that is necessary for our long-term survival. We're seeing the consequences of the absurd uh, world that we're living in 
now. And uh, I have a, one more question that I want to ask you, Madeline. But okay. before we do that, I just want to remind our listeners that we have about 15 minutes or so um, left in the show. And so we want to open up uh, the phone lines for you. Uh, that number is 212-209-2877. Again, the number is 212-209-2877. Um, so Madeline, just before we uh, get to some of the listener calls and maybe just a, a more loose conversation, long-term, what are the people in Texas going to need to recover from this? Yeah, I think that... Um... This is a hard thing for those of us in Texas right now to to conceptualize, right? We are we are still in the in the midst of handling, um, you know, busted pipes and you know just all sorts of traumas and um, restocking our refrigerators and things. But there are um, folks who have put together sort of five um, ideas or. Uh, I would, I, don't, I don't really want to call them demands quite yet, but five, I will say five demands that we um, are looking towards. And I, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna read these. They're on the text, um, powerfortexas.org, um, and that is to mandate weatherizing for all energy suppliers and generators operating in Texas, uh, requiring suppliers to hold more power in reserve, which will eliminate that just-in-time generation that failed us so utterly. Um, and considering a capacity market as a replacement. Uh, the third is canceling all utility shutoffs related to Winter Storm Uri. So that will extend the existing moratorium and hold companies responsible instead of the consumers um, to prevent future price gouging, eliminating the opportunity for companies to make sky-high profits um, while Texans suffer and die, and then to join the Western or Eastern interconnection to enable power sharing between regions like El Paso is connected to the Western grid and kept power almost without interruption. So these are sort of the things we're starting to think about, but the most important thing that Texas is going to need to recover is organizing, right? We need a mass movement, a mass working class movement of folks um, from all different parts of our state um, to really work together on a set of, of shared goals and demands to put a lot of pressure on the folks who, you know, already kind of know they're, they're in trouble. I mean, um, members of the ERCOT board have been quitting left and right. And so um, really what we need, though, is to put a lot of pressure on the governor um, and the other elected officials who have made a lot of decisions that, you know, gave ERCOT the power that they did, et cetera. I yeah. think that's, uh, Lee, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, it's just so interesting how in all of these campaigns, you know, we're focusing on our governors here and, and, you know, here in New York, Governor Cuomo has talked such a big game against our utilities before. Um, you know, he's always threatening them. We're seeing the same kind of, uh, maybe not as severe, um, but, you know, any of the tropical storms that have hit us, but also these like winter storms, we see the blackouts. Um, and I just also want to um, give our, the phone number one more time for, for listeners to call in. Um, it is 212-209-2877. Again, that's 212-209-2877. And Jack, if you want to say what you were saying before I kind of cut you off there. No worries. No, I think I, uh, you made a really great comment that kind of brought everything full circle in this episode, the kind of the struggles against our horrible governors, whether they're Republicans down in Texas or Democrat 
up here in New York. But I think just to kind of build off the the last point that Madeline was making is that it's so crucial, really, the the leverage, where we have leverage to kind of force through these demands is in the movement, is through organized working class power and organized working class power that's oriented towards this sort of eco-socialist platform is is so so crucial. And I just want to also remind our listeners that you are tuning in to Revolutions Per Minute. I'm listener-sponsored WBAI in New York City, broadcasting in 99.5 FM and streaming on your favorite podcast app. And just as Lee just said, our phone lines are open at 212-209-2877. Again, that number is 212-209-2877. Do we have any callers on the air? We have none at this moment. We've got none right now, but that's uh, that's all right. Because um, I actually have a question for Lee that I've uh, been waiting to ask, and I just, um, you know, we're talking about this this fight for uh, public power down in Texas. So I don't know if you just want to give our listeners an update on you know the the fight for public power here, why it's so crucial in New York, and where there are kind of maybe overlaps between these two fights. Yeah, I mean, um, we did a really great episode a couple weeks ago with some of the New York City DSA eco-socialists um, on the bills um, that they're going to be introducing to, you know, take over our corporate utilities here in New York. Um, there's also a very interesting fight happening right now on Long Island. They kind of, without getting way too in the weeds, but they kind of have a separate um, energy system than the rest of New York. We have the New York Power Authority. They have the Long Island Power Authority. And, you know, there's a lot of talk about municipalization um, on Long Island, um, you know, which isn't necessarily um, a stronghold. Uh, we did we do have some great socialists out there, but it is much more um, conservative, I would say, than a lot of New York City. Uh, but there's there's real um, efforts there to take over the 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 utility, um, mostly because of a lot of these same reliability issues, right, that we're, we're seeing in Texas, not necessarily some of the same technical issues. There's there's definitely different technical things that have happened um, within these areas and distributions, but because of a lot of the same um, background problems, right, you know, this comes from a complete disinvestment in the grid um, or a priority in shareholder profits over maintaining the grid and um, guaranteeing energy as a human right. Um, And we do have a caller on the line now, so we would love to hear from you. Caller, you are uh, live now on WBAI. What's your um, name and quick comment or question? Yeah, Antonio from the Bronx. Um, Comment and question or maybe just a comment. I, I don't agree that Texas should join the power grid national power grid. I think it should have some kind of like emergency set up that they can, but they should remain independent because it's a lot easier. I mean, there are other realities of serious problems happening with a grid like a solar flare or an attack. And so it's a lot easier to put together a grid that's smaller than instead of a national one. I think this incident happened and just you guys should take the opportunity to make it stronger and much more diverse. And there was a politician or an official who was on TV who said something, somebody asked him something or a reporter and said, we don't owe you nothing or don't expect anything, something like that. Uh, So in other words, I got from that was, you gotta be prepared for these things. Uh, It's a shame, I lived in Texas for a while and yes, their attitude, I worked there for a while and I did plumbing there. 
and their codes were much more, much lighter. Um, like when I was on a job, the plumber wanted to, the people doing the work wanted to put the water line two feet deep. In New York, the code is six feet deep because of the type of weather we get. So I told him, I said, listen, go double. Let's compromise. So I, I'd like it six feet. So how about three? So we compromised at three. So, and they said, well, we don't get those kind of things. Maybe once in a hundred years. And I said, well, do it anyway. So there's erratic weather. Last point I want to make is another thing that's exacerbating or contributing to this that I've been researching, this erratic weather around the world and increased volcanism, is that the poles have shifted and they could go even further. And if you Google that information or research it further, you find out that uh, uh, scientists and archaeologists and whatnot, geologists through looking at studies found out that this can happen and create erratic weather as well. So got to be prepared. Don't get rid of your Parker. Well, I just wanted to thank uh, the the caller for uh, calling in and uh, offering that perspective. I mean, uh, I, there, there are a variety of things that, that cause erratic weather, um, but there's also um, some pretty clear evidence that these sort of extreme weather events are deeply connected to the increase in fossil fuels in the atmosphere, that these sort of polar vortexes expand further south and increase the cold. So this is something that Texas is going to have to be dealing with. Um, and it's also due to a lack of investment in the infrastructure and prioritizing the investors over the people who are receiving the energy and over the workers as well. Um, but I would like to give Madeline a chance to respond. Yeah, no, thank you. Um... I'll just quickly say, yeah, I appreciate the thoughts and I'll definitely bring them back to the chapter. Um, and like I had mentioned, you know, we're, we're quite early in the stages of this conversation and um, it's really good to have other folks input, especially those who, you know, have different um, experiences in their local areas. Well, it looks like we've got another caller on the line. You are live on WBAI Revolutions Per Minute. What is your name and your question or comment? Yes. Hi, my name is Jackie and I am from the Houston area and I've got uh, some questions for Madeline. Uh, first is, how long did it take you to organize? What did you distribute and how many people do you think you served? And thank you for doing all this work too, by the way. Yeah, no problem, Jackie. Um, thanks so much for listening and calling in. I appreciate that. Um, it's good to hear a voice from down here. Um, so it took us, um, I would say <laughs> three hours from between we just, when we decided to do the first distribution and when it started, um, it was very ad hoc on Thursday. Um, we decided I met up with another comrade in a parking lot where I had found a lot of water at a, at a store, um, to buy. And we decided to, um, buy extra and distribute it that evening. So um, the first one was purely just social media blasts. And then on the community side, just doing it in a place where we knew people could see us from their apartment. So we did it at a, um, a Houston Housing Authority public housing complex, um, Kelly Village in the Fifth Ward. Um, and that went so well. And it was kind of this beautiful symbiotic situation where 
a person would bring, you know, like 30 canned goods and a gallon or, a you know, a thing or two, of a 24 pack of bottled water at the same time as someone else would come and take it. And we kind of just like had this uh, situation where there was always just enough for the people who were, who had come. And, um, but then, you know, they, the word was spreading um, because they would tell their neighbors and call their cousin and whoever. And so we told them, we're like, we'll be back at noon tomorrow. And so they got the word out. Um, and we, that night ferociously, um, did a lot of calling and a lot of trying to make sure that folks who could donate, um, and could just go shop for supplies were doing so. And so one of the biggest things that we ran into was not money because Mutual Aid Houston got a ton of donations that we could reimburse people for shopping. It was literally just people going and filling up grocery carts and bringing them. That was the limiting factor throughout most of the weekend. Um, and so, you know, on Thursday, on, so Thursday night, we did that really ad hoc one. Friday, we did the one at noon again at Kelly Village. And then at Kelly Village, we started hearing like, oh, there's this other apartment complex. You guys should go there, go there too. Gulf Coast apartment at 6603 Hirsch, 6603 Hirsch Street, again in the Fifth Ward. Um, and so we were like, okay, we'll be there at noon tomorrow. <laughs> um, so we decided that at about 4 p.m. You know, on Friday. And so Saturday happened. We're just blasting on social media um, every single night. And Friday, we also got in contact with Houston Food Bank and a couple of other folks who were able to donate. You know, we got about 50,000 masks, reusable masks donated um, by donated by the, the food bank, um, as well as some other things. And so Saturday, you know, we show up at 6603 Hirsch. We're helping people all day. Um, we get, you know, just more, so much, so much food, um, but the line just never ended. We were there from you know, 10 a.m. starting to set up until 5 p.m. The last person came through. We just totally ran out. And so then, you know, we started hearing like, oh, you know, like y'all y'all need to go to Finnegan Park. And so, yeah, at about 7 or 8 p.m. Saturday, we were like, okay, noon at Finnegan Park. So anyways, we think we served about um, 5,000 people over the four days. And, um, and it was really just a collective effort um, between – getting community members and getting people to donate. That's a really incredible story. And I, uh, I just want to give you a chance for a, a 10 second final comment because we've got to wrap, wrap up. We're coming to the end of the hour. Just that if you're in Houston, uh, join Houston DSA. Um, if you're in Texas, go to powerfortexas.org and meet up with uh, other Texas chapters there and everywhere else. Just be, be there in solidarity with us. Thank you so much. Follow along on our socials. Well, thank you so much for coming on Revolutions Per Minute. And I also want to um, thank Alice and Gary for coming on the show as well. And Lee for doing a, a great job as, as a fellow host. And I want to thank our listeners for tuning in to Revolutions Per Minute on WBAI. We'll be back next week, um, Wednesday at 9 p.m. You've been uh, listening to Revolutions Per Minute. This is Jack, and I'll see you out on the streets.